As a church, we've been looking at the life of Jesus from Mark's gospel. And we, after this week, I believe we're going to have three weeks left in Mark. And we're done with the gospel of Mark. It began beginning of the year. Um, and throughout this journey, man, we have absolutely had so, it's been so fruitful understanding who Jesus is um, and how he relates to us. And so we've, we've had a great time looking at Mark. And so, yeah, like um, end of November, we'll be done with Mark. But we're, this week, we're still in Passion Week um, and we're in Mark chapter 14 and we're going to be looking at verses 53 to 72, verses 53 um, throughout 72. I'm going to read, um, and I want you guys to read along with me. Yeah? Good morning, actually. Hey. For those who don't know me, my name's Obed. <laughs> Should have introduced myself. <laughs> uh, my wife always says, introduce yourself. All right, I have. Now let's read. Mark 14. <laughs> 53 throughout 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. By the way, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, we have some available for you to your right. Yeah? To your right. Cool. Um, verse 55. Yes. I'm just testing you guys. Seeing if you really... <laughs> of course, I knew. I think I did. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus um, to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple um, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, uh, This man is one of them. 
but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Pray with me. God, oh, as we come to this well-known story of how you were put on trial and how one of your closest disciples denied you. May we be reminded of what we need to be reminded of, but also may you help us see how your grace and your love provides of us for us hope for restoration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. This week has been an interesting week for me. Most weeks when I study for my sermons, I kind of sort of relate. Um, but this week in particular, um, what we're about to explore what we're going about to discover really, really related to me and what I was going through. And so, without further ado, let's get into the text line by line and see how it applied to me and how it applies to you. Let's look at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. It's about 12 midnight. And after Jesus' arrest in Gethsemane, he is taken to a private room in the residence of the high priest at the time. There, the high priest is joined by representatives from the chief priests, elders, and experts of the law. Along with the high priest, these were uh, the religious groups that made up what is known as the Sanhedrin. In the times of Jesus, the Sanhedrin was the highest court of justice. They discussed and settled religious questions and passed judgment on those who broke the law. They were, you could say, the supreme court of ancient Israel. And so, Jesus' arrest later that night has led him to stand trial before the Sanhedrin. But before we get into the content of the trial, all right, it will be helpful for us to know several things, right? And what we need to know specifically at this time is that everything about this trial was shady and illegal from the very beginning. And the first reason why is no criminal at that time, according to the law of the land, no criminal should be tried at night. It was illegal for a criminal to be tried at night. Second, trials were never allowed to take place during an annual festival, okay? If you've been in Mark with us, you know that currently um, they're celebrating, they've been celebrating the Passover festival, right? 
And so, again, it was illegal in so many ways. Lastly, a defendant was required to have an attorney or witnesses to defend him. And so at this moment, as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, he had none of that. No defendant, no attorney, nothing. The trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin violated those laws and many more. It was illegal from the beginning in every possible way. And so this is what we're dealing with here. Legal activities. But before the trial begins, the scene changes, if you noticed, as we read, to a makeshift court, from a makeshift courtroom to the courtyard of the high priest. Peter's actions in the courtyard is briefly introduced. Look at verse 53. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And so when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, his disciples, scattered and went into hiding. But Peter, being Peter, very strong-willed, refused to be a wimp like the other disciples. Instead of running and hiding, he followed the mob that arrested Jesus all the way to the residence of the high priest. And so while Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, Peter was waiting for him outside in the courtyard by the fire. Before we look at what happened with Peter, let's get back to the trial. Look at verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. It says they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And what this means is that even before the trial began, they had determined the outcome. All right? And their plan all along has been to find a crime serious enough for the death sentence. And in order to find such a crime, they have to fabricate the whole case just fabricate everything. They have to manipulate timelines and overlook crucial evidence in order to expedite, uh, expedite a guilty verdict. And to achieve this, they need people, okay? They need people willing, right, who are willing to come forward and lie about Jesus. And so what they did was it's late at night. Remember, it's like 12 midnight. What they've done is they've gone around and they've found who they can, Right? They, they, they didn't find the people they wanted, but they found who they can, and they've actually managed to find people that were willing to come forward and lie and give false testimony against Jesus. And so when they brought them into the trial to testify against Jesus, they soon discovered a problem. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against Jesus, right, against him, but their testimony did not agree. Look at verse 57. And some stood up and bore, fit, and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. They're just lying here, right? They, okay, Jesus talked about kind of the destruction of the temple, but Jesus didn't say, I'm going to destroy it, and I'm going to rebuild it. Jesus, you know, and so they're fabricating. They're coming up with lies, and 59 continues to tell us that, 
that, yet even about this their testimony did not agree. One by one, men came forward to testify against Jesus, but their statements did not agree. They contradicted each other, and this made their testimonies ineffective and insufficient. Meanwhile, as one witness after another brought false witness and inconsistent allegations against Jesus, guess what? Jesus didn't say a word. He kept silence. Irritated, baffled by Jesus' silence, the high priest demands an explanation. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? High priest is baffled here. He's like they're bringing all these allegations against you. Why are you not trying to defend yourself, Jesus? Verse 61, beginning of it, it says, but he remained silent and made no answer. Have you ever been in an argument with someone? All right, and you're arguing and you're trying to get them and they just don't respond. They're just calm, cool, collective. Once pulled up to our local post office, opened my car and I, I mean, I literally just touched the car next to me. It was a truck. The guy heard and saw. He got out, came round and started just giving it to me, just going, who do you think you are? Let me see that. Let me see. He couldn't see anything. You know, there was no mark or anything. And just like saying some ridiculous things to me and he's saying it and I'm just standing, right? And I'm just standing there just looking at him um, and then he's just realizes that I'm just not responding. And then he's kind of done and goes, I hate you, and just kind of like (laughs) walks away. And I don't always respond like that, but I was proud of myself that day. (laughs) As frustrating as this may have been for the Sanhedrin, that is Jesus' silence, they refused to give up. They refused to give up. They were willing to integrate Jesus for as long as it takes to get some sort of confession worthy of the death sentence. Charles Spurgeon says this, the trial had been a dead failure up to this point. Now, the high priest attempts to bully the prisoner that he may extract some declaration from him which may save all all further trouble of witnesses and end the matter, right? And so the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they're just looking for something, okay? Look at um, the end of 61. It says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? All right, notice he didn't say, are you the Christ, the son of God? Right? He said the son of the blessed. Back then, they viewed God's name as being so holy Right? They didn't even want to utter it. They didn't even want to say it. Okay? And so he says to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This, for the first time, was a legitimate answer. It was a legitimate answer. Okay? Uh, no, legitimate question. Sorry. This is not a what did you do question, right? It was more of a who are you 
question. The Sanhedrin, right, they were very much aware that the title, the Son of God, was a statement of equality with God. And they also were aware of the fact that it was considered blasphemy for anyone to claim to be God. Jesus knows the intent of the question. He knows the question was meant to bait him into speaking blasphemy. And so what does he do? He knows all of this, but he answers anyway, knowing that his death is imminent. And it would become the greatest gift to humanity. Look at verse 56. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've been wrong all along about many things, but you're absolutely right about this one thing. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. And as soon as Jesus said this, you could hear a pin drop. Sheer astonishment and shock. The whole room, every single member of the Sanhedrin must have gasped. In our day and age, if someone comes along, goes on YouTube, or they're interviewed on the news, and claims to be God, how do we respond to that? We laugh at them. We're like, they've gone cuckoo, you know? Kind of, they're crazy. And no one, you know, kind of, they have this kind of hype going on, and then eventually everyone just ignores them, you know? No more views on YouTube, nothing like that, right? Everyone ignores them. But back then, if you went around claiming to be God, it was a serious offense, right? We were claiming to be God, and you had followers, and you was gaining influence. It was a serious thing. So, so serious, you would be arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. Also, this statement, with this statement, Jesus doesn't only claim to be God in human flesh, okay? He goes on to claim that he will fulfill his role as final judge of the world, and even the leaders he's standing in front of. To put it another way, while they judge him unjustly in the present, right? In the future, Jesus will judge them justly as the God of the universe. And this is the statement that seals Jesus' fate. Look at verse 63. And the high priest, in response to what Jesus had just said, verse 63 says, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further evidence do we need? Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so after Jesus affirmed his identity as God and his future return in glory to judge and reign over the world, the first thing the high priest does is begin to tear his clothes. In those days, tearing of clothes was an expression of grief. And I'm glad we don't do that. A lot of money wasted. Imagine, you're wearing this like expensive designer outfit you really like. And you get news of some sort of grief. And you're like, oh, I've got to like, tear it. Ah, it's crazy. So the high priest... 
begins to rip his clothes to display profound dismay at what Jesus had just said. They're all, all at this time, united in outrage and disgust at what Jesus has just said. And his confession is viewed as blasphemy and deserving of death. Look at verse 63. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is an intense and horrible scene. This trial and their intimidation tactics have been ugly and abusive. An innocent man is falsely tried in an illegal way. He's condemned to death and physically abused by corrupt authority figures late at night behind closed doors. And the authority is responsible for upholding justice have just violated all principles of justice. It's an intense, a horrible sight. Issues of corruption, police brutality and abuse of power in the justice system haven't disappeared since the trial of Jesus. Currently, we hear it all the time, men and women in power continue to abuse and misuse their power. Recently, my wife and I watched a docu-series on Netflix um, documenting how several youth in New York were wrongfully blamed for the murder of a young lady. And that docu-series was fantastic. It's called When They See Us. And it, again, highlighted um, the tragic reality of corruption, police brutality, and it's not gone away. It still exists. And so, in light of the existence of corruption, where there shouldn't be any corruption, uh, what kind of gives us hope and comfort? What kind of gives us hope and comfort is what Jesus said earlier, okay? He said, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna judge. As a righteous, good judge, I'm gonna come and judge you and I'm gonna judge the whole world. And so for those who are abusing power in any way, they think they're getting away with it, but the truth is all evil, deception, false testimony, and oppression will one day be brought into the light and will be judged for what it is. Jesus' words are not to be taken lightly or figuratively, right? Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, will one day return to judge the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and the whole world world. J.C. Ryle says this, then in light of Jesus' return and judgment, let us daily remember that our Savior is one day coming back to this world. Let the Christ in whom we believe be not only the Christ who died for us and rose again, but the Christ who will one day return in glory to gather together and reward his people 
and to punish all of his enemies. And so the question is, Jesus is going to be back. We don't know when he's going to return. So the question is, will you be ready for his return? Story is far from over. Let's look at what happens as this story comes to an end. And so now what happens is the story now focuses on Peter and tracks his experience as he denies Peter. And the interesting thing is, right, Jesus' trial and Peter's denial all took place at the same time. All took place at the same time. And another interesting thing about Peter's denial is it happened, right, within a, a two-hour time frame. Okay, when we read it, it feels like it's immediate. He's denying Jesus one after the other. But remember, as we walk through it, it's happening, right, within a two-hour time frame. Okay, look at verse 66. It says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. So the residence of the high priest was this big rectangular building with a massive open air courtyard in the middle. And so it's a cold spring night in Jerusalem. And while Jesus is on trial in one of the upstairs rooms, Peter is below keeping warm by the fire. And at this point, of course, he wants to go unnoticed. He wants to remain incognito. Did I pronounce that word right? Yeah, he wants to remain that way. And he wants to just blend into the crowd. And as his face glows with the warm orangey color from the fire, his desire to remain undercover is now threatened, right? One of the servant girls of the high priest looks at him, kind of squints her eyes, I think, right? And gives him that look that says, I, I, I know you from somewhere. Look at 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. This must have been a huge shock for Peter. He didn't plan for this. This has is, this is absolutely caught him off guard. Peter has always been impulsive, always been, and how he reacts here is further proof of this. The servant girl asks nothing of his faith or allegiance or anything like that, but he responds with a blatant lie. Look at verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. This was the first of his three denials. Let's look at the second, verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, right? And so this girl seeing him looking at everyone else and she goes to them, hey, uh, hey guys, this, this man is one of them. He's one of Jesus' disciples. What happens in verse 70? Look at it. But again, he, that is Peter, denied it. This second confrontation probably happened about an hour after the first. And so uh, if it happened an hour after the first, it, it, Peter's probably had time to think about this. And even though he's had time to think about it, there's no difference in his response. Peter responds the same way to the same questions. He's identified as one of Jesus' disciples, but again, he rejects any association with Jesus. Look at the end of 70, verse 70. It says, 
And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Here, the term after a little while, again, it's about an hour in length, and so another hour goes by, and Peter is still in the courtyard, and I'm sure he's possibly freaking out at this point. He's desperate to remain hidden and blend in with the crowd. But again, he's unsuccessful for the third, third time. Someone identify him, identifies him as a disciple of Jesus. And this time they have solid evidence to prove it. They're certain he's one of Jesus' disciples. Why? Because he's from Galilee. And how do they know he's from Galilee? Probably because of his accent. Okay? Galileans had this unique accent. Peter had given himself away with all those denials. They could hear that he was from Galilee, where Jesus was. Verse 71 tells us that he swore at them, saying, May I be cursed if I'm lying? I swear before God that I do not know Jesus. Earlier, when Peter was accused of being a friend and disciple of Jesus, he firstly responds with this single lie, kind of just says, hey, I don't know him. Then an exaggerated lie to several people, and now an outbreak of curses and swearing. And what happens after that? Look at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter has reached a very low point in his life. And what he just did was terrible. Not just because he denied any connection with his beloved friend and rabbi, but this is what makes it even more terrible what he did. He swore to God that he doesn't know God. It's crazy. Hearing the rooster and suddenly remembering Jesus' earlier words caused Peter to break down and weep, and weep bitterly and weep uncontrollably. While Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, Peter failed. Peter faced a trial of his own and he failed miserably. One author puts it this way, while Jesus spoke honestly knowing it would cost him his life, Peter spoke this honestly in order to save his life. Peter, in the past, proclaimed his loyalty to Jesus in front of everyone during the Passover meal. 
And he had also declared his loyalty and commitment to Jesus with a sword in Gethsemane. And so earlier, previously, when Jesus told him and said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter was like, what? No way. I love you, Jesus. I will never deny you. Let me just say this. As we transition to the application of this story, please don't do what I did throughout most of the week and say to yourself, I know where he's going. I'm familiar with this. Pray that God would give you a fresh and life-changing perspective of this particular story. That night in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter discovered how weak and vulnerable he was and how much he needed Jesus for strength. Peter was not above denying the one he loved most. Peter's denial causes us all to consider how weak we are and how much we need Jesus. All of us in a room of this size cause have experienced failures, at various times in our Christian lives. Whether it's giving into the, the sin you promised you'll never go back to, whether it's not praying as much as you said you would or reading your Bible when you said you would or just generally failing to fulfill all your devotional commitments. We all have experienced failure. And the guilt of past failures and sins can be very, very haunting and extremely crippling. But in Peter, Jesus shows us how he can transform someone who fails miserably into a rock of strength for his church. This is true. Like Peter, we have all denied in the past and we will in the future. We have all denied God and made a mess of our relationship with him. But the truth that we never need to forget, the truth our failures need not cause us to forget is that Jesus Pay for our sins, pay for our failures on the cross. And now Jesus lives, as the resurrection proves, to forgive all those who will 
trust him. Peter's story reminds us that God loves us despite our many failings and he's always willing and able to restore us back into full fellowship with him. Do you believe this? Is this good news? It should be. Because of Jesus, hope of restoration is always available. Even after our most terrible failures. And so this morning, no matter how severe your failures are, may you choose to be restored through repentance and faith. May you turn from the guilt and shame of your failures and turn to the grace and love provided by Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray. God, may you bring about true and lasting repentance in all of our lives. And may you inspire us to turn from our sins and our failures and look to Jesus Christ and have faith in all that he's done for us. In his name we pray, amen. We're gonna, as we do, transition to a time of reflection, all right? And during this time, may you, in your heart, in your own way, in your own space, may you pray. And say, God, may everything I've heard not just remain in the intellect, but may it transition to my heart and transform the way I view you, God, the way I view other people, the way I view the world and the way I live. Pray that. Cry out to God. Let this Sunday where you've gathered with God's people be there you can look back and say, God, you did the supernatural. I prayed and you answered me. All right? So just spend time and Dan and the team will give you further instructions as it relates to worship and singing. Love you guys.